The second week of 2023 flew by in a flurry of mild temperatures and busy news days. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. It's highly contagious, and it is one reason why when I recently flew on a plane, uh, I wore a mask. We'll talk about New York State's recent efforts to combat opioid addiction and whether they've been effective. It's both a workforce crisis and a, a health crisis. And we'll go over what we know so far about the search for a missing 14-year-old from Schenectady. It may be more search, more of a search and uh, recovery than a search and rescue. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's now discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. All right, we are back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines of the week. And first up, since we are the paper of note in the capital of New York State, uh, let's get the highlights of Governor Kathy Hochul's first State of the State address as an elected head of state. What did she say this week? Uh, yeah, the state of the state is, of course, kind of the the poetry that is then followed by the prose of the uh, the executive budget proposal that's going to come in a couple of weeks. This one was built around the theme of boosting what Hochul described when she spoke to the legislature and assorted guests in the assembly chamber as rebuilding uh, the New York dream, the New York dream she said is, you know, a variant on the American dream that we need to promote as something that that folks can make come true in New York. For her, the big elements included a major investment in mental health aid, which of course is uh, not only connected to crime, but does play an element of that, and a goal of building uh 800,000 affordable housing units over the next decade to address what in many regions of the state is, of course, a, a housing crisis. Josh Solomon, who has been looking hard at the data and the policy surrounding criminal justice changes that have been enacted in recent years, wrote about the fact that Hochul has also proposed to give judges more discretion to set bail in certain uh, violent and some nonviolent felonies. That is, of course, a response to what was really kind of the dominant uh, issue in the last election cycle and, of course, bedeviled Democrats, including Hochul herself in her battle with Lee Zeldin. We will see if the legislature, which uh, a year ago did make certain changes to the bail reform changes that were enacted earlier will be game to pick up this issue again. The initial response was uh, indistinct, I think would would probably be the best way to, to say it. But 
in general, it was a well-received speech, and I think people are pouring over the more than 270-page um, briefing book that came along with it. And once again, all of these ideas are going to be put into legislative language when the executive budget proposal is rolled out. And it's worth noting that this will be Hochul's first budget and the first budget in a long time that will not be rolled out with the presence of uh, Robert Mujica, who is the state's longtime budget director, who uh, either uh, has left or is about to leave the administration. All right. Well, you can read more about all of that on our Capital Confidential section on timesunion.com. And we will have more later in this podcast um, about that state of the state address and what was in it. We uh, Let's move on to something that actually happened at, on the same day at the same time uh, as the governor's state of the state address. What happened in another part of Albany? Yes. While uh, the eyes of virtually every member of the Capitol press corps was trained on the assembly chamber, the state police's special investigation unit uh, was raiding the headquarters of the New York State Troopers Police Benevolent Association, which is um, a significant union that represents um, uh, uniformed troopers in um, some of the, the lower ranks. And Brendan Lyons our State House Bureau Chief and investigative lead editor has been reporting for months now in the wake of the departure of Tom Mangier, who's a longtime leader of that union, on questions surrounding uh, the uh, conduct of past leaders, including Mangier, and uh, fiscal practices within the union. There has clearly been a new broom of leadership sweeping through that union, but questions still remain over its practices. And apparently those were at the root of the SIU's decision to raid not only the offices of the PBA, but also what is known as the Signal 30 Benefit Fund, which is uh, an affiliated entity to the union that is um, a large pool of money as well. Now, Brendan <laughs> was across the street with our photographer, Jim Franco, kind of quietly watching all of this unfold because he is an extremely good reporter and because he has been um, on this case so well. It is, uh, of course, an intriguing bit of timing that the SIU decided to stage this raid while the state of the state was going on. You know, the union said it's uh, cooperating and put out a a fairly generic statement, but I'm sure there is going to be um, more on this uh, to come. Absolutely. And again, check out Capital Confidential on timesunion.com for more on that. All right, let's move on to a bit of health news. Uh, seems like we've had, it feels like a little bit of deja vu, I guess, whenever a new strain of the coronavirus or COVID-19 emerges and we're talking about it. But this one, I think in particular, is interesting because of the name that it has been given. But I will uh, let you explain exactly what this new strain is and how it's uh, affecting us. Yes. Uh, the scientific name is XBB.1.5. That's the variant we're talking about. But because that is a mouthful, they're referring to it as the Kraken. You know, the mythical, the mythical beast that also gets referenced in the recent remakes of Clash of the Titans and, of course, in uh, the uh, effort to overturn the 2020 election as deployed by 
some of uh, former President Donald Trump's uh, less credible uh, attorneys. Yes, the, the Kraken variant, as Rachel Silverstein noted, now makes up over 50% of COVID cases in New York. It's highly contagious, and it is one reason why when I recently flew on a plane, uh, I wore a mask. And uh, I'm happy to say that as I sit here today, I am, as far as I know, COVID negative, though I could be jinxing the hell out of myself. Let's hope that you stay in the negative. Well, it was definitely a, you know, a source of entertainment to publish that story <laughs> by saying release the Kraken. Yeah, please um, don't release the Kraken. Yes, yeah, don't release it, but release the story about it. Um, all right, so let's go over one more story that actually did very well for us this week and captured some intrigue around the Capital Region. And it has to do with the Albany Airport's lost and found. What did they find there? They found a wedding album that was lost and includes photos of what looks like a very happy event from the late 1960s or early 1970s. Uh, you know, the, the bride and the groom are, are uh, completely visible. Guests shaking hands, everybody in white tuxedos and black tie with the words Aloha album inscribed on the cover. Now, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to theorize that it might reflect a wedding that took place in Honolulu and uh, or, or rather in Hawaii, I should say. And uh, it, it has, in fact, been identified as our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Honolulu. And they did that, according to Doug Myers at, at the airport, uh, he said they did it uh, matching the wooden background carving. So as we speak, it would appear that uh, the owner of the album has not yet come forward, but uh, the airport is taking your calls at 518-242-2230. So if you got married at a Lutheran church in Honolulu, we might have your wedding album. Yes, there's a lot of people both in the newsroom and in our audience who are very invested in finding out who these people are and getting that album back. I would love to see that resolved personally. Yes, remember, aloha means both hello and goodbye. That is very true. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining us, and we will check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. Now, as we mentioned in the previous segment, New York State Governor Kathy Hochul delivered her first State of the State address as an elected head of state. We will do the hard things, the necessary things to lift up and support New Yorkers and clear a path for them to realize the New York dream. That is my promise. Among the issues she covered in her 45-minute speech this week was the state's efforts to combat the opioid epidemic. Hochul promised a forthcoming crackdown on fentanyl supply, among other things. The Times Union's Raga Justin has been reporting on the effectiveness of the state's previous tactics to combat a spike in opioid-related deaths. I checked in with her after the State of the State speech to find out more. Can you start with kind of a little bit of a an overview of kind of the situation? We have spiking death rates in New York due to the opioid crisis. Is that fair to kind of set this up? 
Yeah, I think advocates and policymakers both had pointed to this kind of spike in death rates as early as 2020. So, of course, you know, people say the pandemic really exacerbated this because, of course, like you're getting into there's a lot of mental health struggles happening um, with people when you're isolated. Uh, if you're already a user, that's going to push you into, you know, if you've been in recovery, you might not necessarily have the same tools or like the same supports that were available to you as before. So you're going to start to feel yourself um, getting back into these old patterns. And then a lot of new users are starting to come to the forefront too. And so I think they've started pointing out that, you know, this has been spiking for the past two years at this point. It it happened at the same time as things were shutting down. So you have this, you know, you're stretching out a healthcare system already with with the pandemic. And then you've also got this sort of silent pandemic happening side by side. And healthcare workers aren't quite prepared for this or neither are substance use uh, counselors and people in recovery working in recovery. It's both a workforce crisis and a, a health crisis. What did the state, the governor, and I guess federally, what, you know, what have they done so far? A lot of talk, I think. Um, That's not to say that people aren't trying. The attorney general, Tish James, she has brought in a couple of billion dollars at this point. I think the total pot is up to $2.5 billion. But of course, you know, it takes an administration or administrative body to administer that money. And there's been some confusion about how much sway that advisory board who has been tasked in distributing this money, how much say that they have. So it just seems like a lot of bureaucracy, I think, is at play here, uh, as maybe it always is. And that money hasn't been dispersed quite yet. And then on top of that, there are some other there's some things that advocates say that, you know, we should be doing uh, that we haven't quite done yet. For example, there's still um, a reliance on taking this to the criminal justice system, cracking down on drug traffickers and drug dealers, which I think has its place. But according to some advocates who have worked, you know, and I think I mentioned this in my story, that hasn't worked so far. Right. I mean, we've been battling the drug problem for years and, and that hasn't happened. So what do advocates say needs to be done? Like, where does that money need to go or what kind Mm -hmm. of programs and things need attention, basically, to reverse these spiking death rates? I think that that money that I just mentioned, it's about $2.5 billion. And I will say that there's people who view this as as a good sign. They're saying, we've got money. There seems to be this investment in the idea of recovery and treatment and prevention so that we don't have to deal with this, you know, later on, you don't have as many people entering into the drug pipeline, and maybe we can just sort of catch it before it starts. But the idea is that in order to save lives at the end of the day, what we need is to focus kind of entirely on harm reduction. And harm reduction is this philosophy that advocates as the end goal, just saving someone's life. It doesn't matter. I mean, you're not trying to preach abstinence to them. You're not telling them don't do drugs. You're not even telling them, you know, you will be punished if you use drugs. The emphasis is just to say, here's a safe space for you to come do drugs if you need to in a sort of clinical or at least protected environment. So you're not, you know, out on the streets, you're in a facility, you have people who are watching over you who are ready to administer 
overdose medication if you need it. Those are called overdose prevention centers. And we've got two of them in New York City. Federally, they're a bit of a hot button issue. A lot of states don't like them. And the federal government really hasn't said where they stand on it either. It's technically illegal. And so I think there's this push to get those in place. People say that that's one arm of the system that could really help drug users. But, you know, I think we're still facing backlash or they're still facing backlash against uh, or from, you know, certain politicians. Parts of the state don't like it. Um, it's it's a pretty hard concept to sell sometimes to, to neighbors. Um, now, let's go back a little bit. I want to talk about specifically about fentanyl um, mm-hmm. and kind of the role that it plays in this opioid crisis. How has it become so bad? So it's a synthetic opioid. It was originally intended as, you know, so so much of this was, uh, it was originally intended as like a pharmacological substance, right? Like it's supposed to be prescribed. It's a medication. It's supposed to help people, especially long-term opioid users who are managing like, let's say chronic pain, who don't respond to opioids anymore or to, uh, you know, other opioids, like more naturally derived opioids. But with that, it's, it's 50 to 100 times more potent. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's it's really, really powerful. Um, the Drug Enforcement Agency uh, or administration, sorry, the DEA mm-hmm. has said that if you tip a pencil, if you dip it into a pile of fentanyl, the grains that stick to the tip of the pencil, that's enough to kill somebody if you're not used to this. So wow. it's incredibly potent. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to uh, people who have studied the drug trade, people who have studied, you know, how this has become a problem, they say that you start to see like around 2011, 2012, there is an opening in the market because we've been cracking down on other forms of drugs. And the thing is, fentanyl is cheap. It's easy to produce. It's produced in China, although sometimes I think they're starting to produce it in Mexico. It's a lot easier to get across the border. um, And it's really, really cheap. And so at first it becomes just this easy way to cut in, get some more profits out of it, cut it into your drug supply, put it in heroin, put it in, you know, at this point we're starting to see it in cocaine and meth too, but it was originally more in heroin. And that's a problem when people aren't used to it. And so when your body can't handle that amount of fentanyl or any amount of fentanyl, then it takes you just seconds to overdose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about opioid overdose is all of it is treatable. It's reversible. If you mm-hmm. have Narcan, if you have naloxone, you can uh, reverse that overdose. But, you know, how many people have naloxone or Narcan just on them? And how many drug users are feel comfortable calling 911 or calling the police? You know, at, at this point, there's still very much a stigma that you might get you know, th- thrown into jail for for using. So we start seeing this kind of ramping up. It starts getting into more and more of the drug supply. And I think once it it's unleashed, it doesn't stop. And that's where, you know, that's what gets us here to today, where uh, some advocates say that there is no like clean drug supply left. Like almost every batch of drugs that they test, whether it be heroin, whether it be cocaine or meth, they all have some traces of fentanyl in them. And, um, that's bad news for people who, who use. Because we must meet this crisis with the urgency that it demands. This week in her first state of the state address as an elected governor, uh, Kathy Hochul uh, made some promises to further take action to curb this opioid crisis. So just tell us, give us a summary of what 
she promised in the State of the State address? Yeah, so she she made some mentions of you know this crisis and spoke to her own personal experience with this. I think she said publicly before that she has lost um, a close family member, I think her nephew, to uh, opioids. And so I think for a lot of people, the fact that she did mention it and sort of made this statewide commitment to working to solve it um, or to, to at least, you know, provide more resources, more funding to people who um, are working around this uh, was really promising for a lot of advocates. Give us the highlights. She will be continuing some of the existing work that she's been doing and that her administration has been doing, but a lot of it was focused on harm reduction. So we're going to be doing, you know, syringe exchange programs. Um, There's going to be more of like a public awareness campaign. Uh, There's some reliance on law enforcement, like they're going to be giving more money to law enforcement who have been working to solve this. But also, again, like harm reduction, more treatment, more uh, prevention training, giving like medication that is supposed to help people get off of uh, an opioid addiction. Again, a lot of, I think, street level providers are going to receive some funding or some help from her, um, she promises, in this in this policy book. So, uh, again, I think it came as like a, a welcome, a welcome move from people who have been wanting her to say more about this crisis. And I think that she she was able to deliver that. Did any of the lawmakers, the Democratic leaders, did any of them mention it afterward in their reactions to it? Yeah, I actually caught up with Senator uh, Gustavo Rivera, who is on the substance abuse um, committee. And he said, you know, it, it was a promising sign, though he does want more to be done. Of course, he has a couple of bills that are very progressive tools to ending this. We talked about OPCs. He he has the bill that sponsors that. Uh, so I think he was sort of cautiously optimistic about it. Again, thanked the governor for including it in her speech while reiterating that um, there's more of an approach that she she could take or there's more more to be done with this. So yeah. All right. Well, you'll be watching it, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you so much. After the break... It's been six weeks since 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey disappeared in Schenectady. We'll get an update on the continuing search for the teen. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The search for 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey in Schenectady was in high gear last week and in this week as well. The teen was last seen just before midnight on November 25th as she entered a city park along the banks of the Mohawk River. She hasn't been seen since. Now, six weeks later, A thaw in freezing temperatures has given Schenectady police a chance to search the river for the missing girl. The Times Union's Paul Nelson has been following the case, so I pulled him aside to get the latest. Police, the Schenectady police are still treating it as a missing persons case, and they are, it's a joint investigation. It's the Schenectady police along with the state police, and uh, they've been searching the Mohawk River 
And more currently, they were searching the Mohawk colony, Half Moon, and Waterford, because that's where they believe that her body at this point, if she is indeed in that river, her body, you know, might be in those locations. So, so that's the latest as it stands. So the weather was kind of the factor in these searches, right? The fact that we've had such mild winter weather, right? No, you're absolutely right. And that allowed uh, the state police divers to actually get in the water and to actually conduct the search. So in this case, the weather certainly, the fact that Mother Nature has cooperated and you know blessed us with this warm weather, that certainly has helped uh, the investigation at this point. Sure. Still must have been a cold dive, though. I, I, I can't. <laughs> I have to imagine that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Better them than me. They're, they're better trained and better qualified. And uh, I don't know if I could last in that cold water. But so they came up empty for lack of a better way of saying that, right? Yeah, at right? this point, like I said, they haven't found anything and they're still conducting that search. It's, you know, to be quite honest with you, I've talked with the um, Schenectady Police Chief, uh, Eric Clifford, and he says that, you know, they're still treating this as a missing persons report, but certainly all the evidence points to the fact that uh, it, it may be more search, more of a search and uh, recovery than a search and rescue uh, mission at this point. Um, have they said anything about the possibility of foul play in this case? Yeah, you know, the police chief has, I asked him when I spoke to him probably about two weeks ago, and he says that they do suspect that foul play is somehow involved in this here because, you know, just going back to the very beginning, uh, you know, she was last seen at uh, Riverside Park in the city of Schenectady. That's actually the Stockade neighborhood. And she went there uh, November the 25th, I think slightly before, a little before midnight. She went up, she went there to meet up with her ex-boyfriend. And he's the same age. He's 14 years old. And she was captured, she was captured, excuse me, on, on police surveillance cameras, actually at the edge of the Mohawk River but there's no evidence, no video evidence of her actually leaving the park. And they have talked, you know, to the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, excuse me, obviously, and the way that the police have categorized it at this point is that he is cooperating uh, with the police. So certainly a lot of questions there. And, uh, you know, her family is certainly at this point holding out hope. Her mother, as a, fa as a matter of fact, her mother actually established a GoFundMe page to try to raise some money to hire a private investigator. And I actually spoke with the police chief about that. And he says he certainly understands as a mother, you know, she's going to do anything and everything to, you know, find out, you know, where her daughter is. The police department did try to set up a meeting with her mother. That never actually materialized. But the point that the police chief made is that, you know, we're throwing a lot of detectives. We're throwing a lot of resources. We have the state police you know, involved with their divers. I think also they had drones up uh, in the air and they have state police helicopters. So they're throwing a lot of resources at this, you know, to hopefully, you know, get to the bottom of exactly where she is. If she is in the river, perhaps, and he did say there is a, a chance that she may have run away, but obviously it's to find and locate her at this point to make any sort of determination. Sure, right. Now, have you personally spoken to the family or any of the representatives of the family? Uh, my colleague, uh, Pete DeMola, did talk with her paternal grandparents. I, th I believe they live in Burn Hills. It's the Matarazzo family. And she actually, uh, Samantha, lived with the Matarazzos, I think, uh, from the age when she was seven until she was 13. So, you know, they've been very vocal and very, you know, supportive of what the police are doing. And again, 
you know, as her grandparents, Samantha's grandparents, you're just, you know, hoping that, uh, you know, that she's found. Yeah, sure. Of course. Let's go back and talk about, you know, who is Samantha Humphrey? You know, just tell me a little bit about her that that we know so far. In terms of what I know, she attended uh, Schenectady High School. Like I said, she was uh, 14 years old. Uh, she lived, uh, like I said, for a time with her paternal grandparents in Burned Hills. And beyond that, there's not much else that the police have said about her. The interesting aspect about this particular case is that she had a friend, another 14-year-old girl who also attended Schenectady High School who disappeared earlier in November. The, the one connection there, and the grandparents were able to confirm this, is that the two girls did know each other. But beyond that, there's not much else of a connection. And the other young lady, you know, subsequently was located and she's okay. So it's now just focusing on, uh, you know, Samantha and hopefully, uh, you know, finding out exactly, you know, what transpired. Mm-hmm. Let's go over the details of her disappearance. Go back to November. When she yeah, so, yeah, so it dates back to slightly before, a little before uh, midnight on November the 25th, where uh, she was reported uh, missing. And through surveillance cameras, the police were able to trace or to find out that she did meet up in Riverside Park in the Stockade neighborhood in the city of Schenectady with her ex-boyfriend. She's 14. He's also 14. And again, the surveillance footage captures her, the two of them, at the edge of uh, the Mohawk River. But again, there's no video evidence of her actually leaving the park. I mean, obviously, the fact that police were able to get in contact with this uh, ex-boyfriend and to talk with him, you know, he's they were, he's still around. But uh, in terms of you know her whereabouts, that's still remains a mystery at this point. There was a black and pink coat that her grandparents later confirmed was her jacket that was found at the edge of the Mohawk River. Uh, And it was a relative that actually located that. And actually, you know, before turning it over to police, uh, posted it on Facebook. But again, police were able to talk with that family member. And like I said, the grandparents did confirm that that was her, that was Samantha's jacket. If you have any information on the disappearance of Samantha Humphrey, contact the Schenectady Police Department's tip line at 518-788-6566. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Raga Justin, and Paul Nelson for their contributions to this episode. And stay tuned. We've got a brand new podcast series by The Times Union debuting. Here's a taste of what's in store. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalique Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body 
has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Coming soon wherever you listen to podcasts.